Welcome to the Footy Jumpers podcast. My name is Rob. I'm from footyjumpers.com website, the web resource for footy jumper history. I'm one of the hosts and my co-host is Lockie. Hello everyone, my name is Lockie. So basically what we're going to be doing here is a weekly podcast documenting the history of footy, footy jumpers, footy uniforms. Basically all things footy. How good's that? So this week we'll be kicking off by starting at 1858 and taking it up to the early 1870s. We hope you enjoy the podcast. If you do, please make sure you subscribe for future editions and also tell all your friends. So, 1858. It was definitely a different time back then. We had Ned Kelly was about three years old. The Victoria was a colony for seven years. Tens of thousands of people were coming across to Australia for the gold fields and the gold mines. What else was going on at the time, Rob? Well, uh, Melbourne itself was growing. Melbourne had grown from 75,000 people to 500,000 people in a 10-year period. And in 1858, a famous cricketer called Tom Wills, uh, he'd recently moved back from England where he dominated cricket. He'd uh, represented Australia or represented Victoria cricket, not really Australia, it wasn't a country. Uh, mm-hmm. So he represented Victoria cricket and he was a superstar. He put a letter into Bell's Life magazine in Melbourne suggesting that we needed to keep cricketers fit in the winter. And so uh, he suggested a rifle club. He also suggested uh, a football club and that that football club would be like a lot of the schools in England would have uh, a game of its own. Uh, So in uh, the UK, they had uh, various schools like uh, rugby, uh, Cambridge, Eton, Harrow. They all had their own code of football and so his idea was to get a bunch of people down to Richmond Paddock which is now where the MCG sits and uh, from there they would then uh, develop this game of football uh, which would become Australian football and what did that so that's, uh, what did that look yeah. like at the time in 1858 the game of football Probably nothing like what it looks like today. Uh, well, for one thing, it was played on a rugby field or was played on a rectangular field. It was actually twice the size of a rugby field. Uh, there were more players. They didn't have uniforms at all. Uh, so you really had to know your, your teammates to, to know who to pass the ball to. And the rules were very vague. Um, even when they wrote out the rules the next year, most of those rules were based on the size of the ground uh, how decisions, umpiring decisions would be made, which was the captains, unless it was a, a two clubs, in which case they'd have an umpire. Um, basically, all the rules were, were um, you have to hand pass, which is probably from the Irish influence. Uh, you could kick the ball down the field, which is more like a soccer influence. Uh, but if you caught the ball, then you could stop the game and take a free kick. So marking and hand passing that were really the the main inventions that uh, weren't in any other game. And, well, although hand passing was probably from the Gaelic football. And, um, yeah, so that was was how the game went. There were two goalposts and you had to score, you know, had to kick the ball in between the two goalposts there weren't four. Did the goal still count as six points then or was it different? No, no, just one. No, that was only when they had, yeah, that's uh, when the... VFL started in 1897. That was the first time they ever had point goals for six points and behinds were one point. Yeah, Up to that, yeah. it was just the number of goals you scored. 
Yeah, right. So after this first game of Scotch v Melbourne Grammar that you mentioned, what happened yeah. after then? Well, our teams started forming, and so a uh, couple of school teams, and Kilda Grammar is another one that started playing football. And so there were a few games the weekends after that, leading into effectively leading into the cricket season, and then everything was, you know, all geared up around playing cricket again. Uh, but there were a few schools played games in 1858. And then for the 1859 winter season, that's when we started having clubs form. Uh, so by then, well, Melbourne had already formed with this, um, that game being played, and that was the formation of the Melbourne Football Club. Geelong formed the next year, and then uh, it just grew from there where um, Carlton formed a, a couple of years later, uh, You've got North Melbourne formed a few years after that and, and so on. And so there were other clubs like South Yarra. There was a Richmond club at one point, not the same Richmond that we have today. And they were, you know, all of those areas around Melbourne each had their own club of players. And then uh, it wasn't until 1859 they actually wrote the rules down. Uh, from what I understand, Wills's real preference was more along the lines of rugby, whereas um, some of the other founding fathers of the game were more influencing it to um, something broader, something that was a, almost a mix of all of the different uh, football get codes that were available. So, as you mentioned, it's like really hard to distinguish between each other's teams when you're playing and how do you find your own teammate. So what did they do in these early days to sort of identify that you've got a teammate yeah, and not so, in opposition? Yeah. Well, realistically, everybody was just wearing their cricket gear. So, you know, just like Australia plays England in the test, uh, in the ashes, you've got everyone's in white, except Australia's got green caps and England's got blue caps. And realistically, that's how it went for... Um, the earliest days of football, players would wear their club cap, but they would have white shirts, white pants. Uh, Geelong is probably one of the earliest ones where they would specifically wear something different, but it was a different, like it depended on who they were playing against. So sometimes they might wear red, sometimes they might wear blue, and then usually with um, white cricket pants again and boots to go with it. So, then uh, so there would just be like yeah. a different top that they would wear. So it would still have the cricket bottoms and the cricket. Oh, cap, might be a shirt. Might top. just be a handkerchief. Could be anything. So if if and the way they worked it out was the club secretary would write to another club secretary and say, you know, we'd like to play you on Friday next week, or we'd like to play you on Saturday next week. Uh, we're going to wear red. And so the idea was, well, if you're going to be the other team, well, just don't wear red. Now, realistically, blue, white and red were the only options for the most part that people were using um, or from the references that I can see. And, I mean, there's probably a few reasons for that, just the availability of red and blue dye and then effectively white was something that wasn't dyed. Uh, so, yeah, they were the, the really the three options. And so you've got teams that wore red and white, teams that wore blue and white, Teams wore blue, teams wore red, and generally Melbourne were the, the main club that would just wear white, and they were actually known as the Invincible Whites. 
I'm and that was pretty much using gone. the same three colors would be hard to still distinguish. Do they make any sort of patterns or some sort of agreement on how the jersey or colors you would represent look? Not really. No. Um, for the most part, it was just turn up with something red. As I say, that might have been a handkerchief tied around your neck. Uh, it might have been a red cap. Uh, may have been a red shirt. And, you know, they were the team that were wearing red and they were playing against somebody that was wearing either blue or white. Uh, so there were no real uniforms as such. Now, in some cases, some of the wealthier clubs were able to, you know, all have, say, a work Guernsey, which is a type of jumper, um, which we'll probably get to at another time. But uh, as I say, Geelong for the a lot of that period, right from the 1850s right through to uh, the early 1870s, they would mostly be wearing red. Occasionally they were white with red, uh, sorry, white with blue. Uh, you've got Melbourne who would mostly wear white, although there's records where occasionally they would wear I was actually called Cerise, which is like a, um, uh, it's like a hot pink almost. Hot um, pink, wow. If, yeah, or if you're familiar with racehorses, uh, the Hawks stable. Uh, I think it's a Hawks stable. They wear Cerise. But, um, yeah, it's it's pink. But then back in those days, pink and red were very much masculine colours, whereas light blue was a feminine colour. And that was the case right up until around the 1930s when it changed and blue became a boy's colour and pink became a girl's colour, effectively. Uh, so back in those days, that, that hot pink, red sort of colouring was associated with blood and masculinity and strength and so forth. So, we, um, yeah, it, it wasn't seen as a talking feminine about colour. With these colours, you sort of... We're talking a lot about the reds and blues and whites, and um, I was just wondering, like, why is it so specific to these three colours? Yeah, great. Blue, for the main reason for blue is that uh, the particular process back in the 1840s, 50s, 60s, etc., uh, how to create blue dye, the process was, I believe, through shellfish, and those, the the dye would not strip the lanolin out of wool. And lanolin gives wool its waterproofing ability. So what you'd do is if you had a, a blue or if you had a woolen jumper and it was dyed navy blue, then most likely it would still be waterproof. You could wear it out in the rain and you wouldn't get as wet as you might in a black or a red or you know some other colour uh, woolen jumper. Red is effectively the colour of the English army in those days. On Realistically, if you go to Buckingham Palace and you see the troop near the guard, they've still got red uniforms on there. But the English army, wherever they went, they would actually bring out the, these um, bugs, cochineal bugs or insects, something, um, on cactuses, and they would, they would squash them up to make red dye. And so you could always get red dye wherever the English army were, and obviously they were in Australia, um, particularly in Sydney, looking after convicts. But um, that red dye was now available in Australia because it was made in Sydney for the English army. And so, and that was because they had those cochineal bugs. And in fact, I think the cactuses that the bugs lived on 
became such an invasive species, it took till about the 1920s to get rid of it, uh, or at least to keep Australia? it under control. In Australia, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so they they got, um, they when they came out, like the first fleet with the, with the obviously convicts, but then they also had American, uh, American they had English uh, soldiers on there, and they stopped in Brazil. They picked up these particular cactuses on their way to Sydney, and then they planted the cactuses. The bugs live in the cactuses, and then they catch the bugs, crush them up, and that's how they make red dye in the 1850s and and before. And so, so that red dye is now available. And so if you want a shirt or if you want handkerchiefs or whatever, and you don't want to go to Germany to get the dye, and you want, well, you can get red from uh, from Sydney. So is that how they're so, actually getting so red options. dye at that time? Was still through that method? Yeah, exactly. That's great. Yeah, so crushing bugs. I mean, <laughs> people used to talk about. It, it, I mean, it hasn't been the case for years and years and years. But you know, I think that was one of the reasons people thought red lollies were bad for kids because they had crushed up bugs in them. <laughs> May well be true. Red Smarties and M and M's and so on, but. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's, right. So that's okay. how they used to make the red dye. When um after this eighteen fifty eight game, I was just sort of like, what what was going on from there? I mean, we we touched along Geelong and Carlton and sort of what they were looking at. Well, what else was going on in regards to the teams and clubs and what they were wearing to represent themselves? Well, for the most part, um, they're just designated with caps. Uh, so Carlton have an orange cap. Uh, Geelong have a red cap, Melbourne a navy blue, and so that's their point of differentiation. And then they might wear something that goes along with that. So as I say, like Geelong would wear red shirts to go with their red caps, um, and that was fairly distinctive. And Geelong were probably a little more organised than perhaps some of the others, but you know they might be playing against a team from the railways or a team from the warehouse workers and so forth. And uh, obviously Geelong's going to be a fair bit stronger than... And that was they had this concept of the senior clubs and the junior clubs. And so a junior club could actually play more players on the field if they played against a senior club uh, back in those oh, really? days. Were they, yeah, were they so, still playing with 18 people on the field then? Uh, no, it was 20 and then a junior club could have 25 or 30. Yeah, right. Yeah, so... And they're, they're playing on a rectangular field. It's not like a footy ground. Yeah. So, you know, they're, they're specking it out like a soccer ground, rugby ground, except it's twice as long. <laughs> right. Yeah, so it's 200 yards for a footy ground. And everything's geared around... See, today we think of it as uniforms like, you know, everybody's got to look the same so that we know who they are on TV. Well, TV's 100 years away. So, mm. uh, you know, the crowd is probably, well, they're getting some people to the ground, but they're not, you know, it's not 100,000 people at the MCG watching the footy. <laughs> no, it's, I don't think so. Yeah, you know, mums and dads and... And so forth. So, you know, as I say, they did get some people at the games, but not the sort of crowds that, you know, we think of today. So they're really just trying to make sure that, you know, I'm passing it to my teammate, who generally I know reasonably well. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's it's not like the 
the need for uniforms so that we can work out one player from the other. Yeah, yeah. So then as that progressed, is this still cricket gear all the way through for the next decade? Well, cricket gear with, you know, things to identify you somewhat, probably from the early 1860s even, they've recognised that we need to do something. We can't just everybody playing cricket lights. So that's why I say, you know, they might have worn a red hanky or a red shirt or something that identified them as different from the other team or blue, you know, blue shirt, blue hanky, whatever it might have been. Um, you know, and some people went around in jackets and so, you know, they were wearing jackets when they're playing these games. So I don't know uh, so, if this comes across as obvious, but why weren't they using any other colours as well? Uh, well, as I mentioned, the, the availability of those colours. Um, I know one of the questions I often get asked, you know, through the website is, well, what about green? How come no one wears green? And to make green dye or the, the way of making green dye uh, at that time, uh, they used arsenic. And so that had two things. One, you didn't want to put arsenic against your skin. And especially if you're going to run around, get knocked over, possibly bleed. Um, And then the other thing with that was because of that uh, link to arsenic, it was seen as a colour of death. And so green was nobody's favourite, you know, in terms of uh, let's uh, let's get new footy jumpers, let's be green. So... Yeah, that's that's why no one had green jumpers. It was, as I say, it's mostly just the availability of those dyes, and especially when compared to the uh, availability of the ones that you could get. You can get blue, you can get red, uh, you can have white or red or blue or combinations thereof. Um, you know, they could work it out between them who wore what in each of these games. Yeah, right. Did um, I think you mentioned Geelong had picked a colour. Were they, anybody else really doing that? Or is it really just still have a chat with each other? Well, some of the others, some of the other clubs that have gone by the wayside. um, So like South Yarra was a really successful team and looks like they were like red and white in those days. Um, Melbourne adopted blue socks, reasonable, uh, they wore, sorry, they wore red socks, obviously blue for Carlton. And that was the first time that players started wearing knickerbocker pants. And that was back in the, not all players for Melbourne, but they, they there was an, an order of, uh, well, they call them hose, but, you know, socks today we call socks. And so that was the first time that the long socks that, you know, players wore for years and years and years and really only went out of, well, you know, Ruckman still wear long knee-high socks today. And that those socks uh, sort of came in in the 1860s for Melbourne and Carlton, but then uh, you know other clubs were still just wearing their pants, cricket pants, hmm. work pants, sometimes things like that. Yeah. Uh, so the, um, that word knickerbockers is that? Oh yeah, that's got some ties to America and the Dutch or something, doesn't it? It's quite, yes. it's quite a word, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> not it's one, brilliant, not isn't one it? I haven't heard in a very long time either. Just kept in the history books. Well, there's a basketball team, the New York Knicks, uh, based oh, on that's wrong. Yeah. So um, it comes from a guy would write articles in the New York newspapers 
and he he was writing it as if he was an old time wealthy Dutch farmer, and he sort of took the the name Nichenbacher, which is you know like a traditional Dutch name that he knew, and to make mm. fun of it a little bit, he anglicised it to Nickerbocker. Um, to sort of say, you know, hey, like the, the the first people to really farm New York State were the Dutch and they went in there and they made a lot of money and then, um, well, Peter Stuyvesant is one guy. Yeah, he obviously farmed tobacco and Peter Stuyvesant still goes around today in cigarettes. So all of these Dutch names were all of the people that had a lot of money in New York City. And so... but. And, and they wore knee-length pants. That was the traditional Dutch look of wearing knee-length knee-length pants. So then the name Knickerbocker, which sort of came to mean this wealthy Dutch farmer, is the name of that style of pants because it was the style of pants that the wealthy Dutch farmers wore. Right. As much as anything to show off the expensive stockings that they had. You know, look at me, I've got expensive <laughs> socks. So, um, so how did this get yeah. into... The game of footy. How did they? How did this clash? Was it just the fashion at the time? Well, no. It as much as anything, it is a uniform thing, and that's because you could wear one colour pants, knickerbockers, and a different colour socks, and then socks were easier to knit into different designs and colours, and so that's where you start seeing red and black, uh, red, black and yellow, blue and red, things of that nature. And so it was easy to then get a pair of socks and have that as your point of differentiation because they were cheap. You didn't have to get a whole jumper. You could wear a certain colour pair of uh, knickerbockers and then your socks would be a different colour to everything else. Yeah, right. So did they still rock the caps then or was that dead now? Some did. They have socks? Oh, look, some, some were wearing caps right up until the 1900s. Um, not everybody was doing that, but, um, but yeah, some were. Yeah, right. Didn't realize they lasted for so long. Must've been so uncomfortable wearing a a hat when you run around on the footy pitch. Well, I would have thought so. Yeah. But, um, you see them like in pork pie caps and everything. It was, uh, I don't know. It's just what they did, I guess. Yeah, right. You'd stand out. Yeah, you didn't have to bleach your hair. Just wear a big hat. So that sort of presents itself as like a, a turning point or a folk, you know, a point of history that it is today that the, the Knickerbockers and where they were introduced, isn't it? Well, that yeah. So different clubs started using them, but then for the 1873 season, the clubs decided and there was... Uh, there was no VFA at this point or VFL. Um, there was just an association of clubs and those clubs decided at the end of 1872 for the 1873 season that from now, when you play football, you're going to wear a Guernsey, which is a, a type of jumper. Uh, we're going to wear knickerbockers and we're going to wear hose or socks. Um, now, hose has a similar word derivative from hosiery, which is like, you know, stockings. Mm. But um, what these, what hose were is, uh, have you ever seen like um, like Scotsmen, they wear a, a kilt and yeah. they have those long, thick socks. 
well, that's that's hose, oh. and so so it's it's actually thick woolen socks, um, is what they call hose. Now, today we wear um, like really thin, not stockings, but you know they've got elastic in them and all that sort of business. But that's um, and that's the beginning of real different uniforms for every different club. Yeah, right. So that was so everyone had in agreement in regards to what they would be wearing now. Exactly. Exactly. So if you were going to play for um, St Kilda, you're going to have a red and black striped, and that means hooped, but you're going to have a red and black striped Guernsey. You're going to have blue knickerbocker pants, and you're going to have red and black striped, again, hooped socks. That's your uniform. Now, what they did was they would actually put white handkerchiefs on to... Uh, distinguish themselves from other teams that were red and black. But, yeah, everybody had a Guernsey, everybody had knickerbockers, everybody had socks, and the first time that really happened for every club was 1873. Yeah, right. I think that's um, that's sort of a a good point to stop it as well because I think it really defines in a good point. It was like 1858, and even just from 1858 to 73 and how far it's come, you can start to see where it's starting to become more, you know, agreed upon and people are understanding. It's not just guys rocking up with a handkerchief anymore. It's, you know, we've yeah, got actually exactly. what we want to be I mean, wearing. today we would call it professional, but, you know, they were quite a, quite a few years away from <laughs> being professional. But, yeah, today we would say, oh, they're becoming more professional. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, that's exactly right. They're starting to say this is one team, this is what they wear. This is the other team. This is what they wear. And, th- you know, there were still some clashes because it was still a lot of red and white, red and bl- uh, blue and white, red, white, blue, and that was it. You know, there was a few here and there. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I think that's probably uh, as good a place as any to uh, to finish up for this week. We mm. can move on to the beginnings of different clubs and different uniforms that they wore, which will be next week. Uh, so, yeah, I think we might leave it there. If you yeah, would, if you've liked this podcast, if you've enjoyed it, please subscribe. We will be doing more. Uh, this will be each week. And so we would um, yeah, appreciate it if you can subscribe because then we'll have more and more numbers. Again, tell all your friends, tell all your mates. And uh, yeah, also, we'll be we'll back have, again um, soon. There's a lot of this information you can find on footyjumpers.com. Oh, there's yep. know, a plethora of footy jumpers and dating back to these dates that we're talking about in this episode. But we'll also link relevant pictures and what was around at the time just to sort of give more of a visual context as well. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, so, yeah, what we're going to do is going to put these onto the footyjumpers.com website. Uh, there'll be a section there for the podcast. Uh, what we'll do this week is put some information of the 1860s and early 70s. Uh, obviously, there's no photographs of that era because uh, they didn't spend any time <laughs> photographing it. I think it was about a week's wages to go and get a studio portrait in the 1860s. Uh, so what you've got is sketches, wood carvings, things of that nature. And so what we've got is a few different samples of those just to give you an idea of what footy looked like and, uh, you know, Obviously, it's not a photograph, uh, so it's it's an artist's interpretation. But um, yeah, it at least gives you an idea of what uh, the uniforms look like in that era. Yeah, yeah, it's cool just to get somewhat of an idea, especially just being so different. So <laughs> such a long time ago. But yeah, exactly. Anyways, I think that wraps it up. Thanks for tuning in, though, guys. Um, 
I've been Lockie, and this has been Rob, and thanks for tuning in to the Fully Jumpers <laughs> podcast. And uh, right, we'll guys. hope to catch you next week. Talk to you again. Cheers. Bye. See ya.